0: Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Michelle
1: Deker, the founder of Aussie based venture capital firm One Ventures, as well as a trained
0: scientist and former e commerce founder. In this episode, Michelle will discuss the importance of the pitch in any negotiation, how she built and exited her e commerce business, and how she went on to build her venture capital firm. If you like
1: this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and tell your girlfriends too.
2: We hope you enjoyed this episode.
0: Hi, Michelle. How are you today?
2: I'm good, thanks, Natalie. Great to be on your show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so we're, excited to have yes. you. <laughs> and where are
0: you calling from?
2: Um, I'm just actually in my home office at the moment. You know, we've all got used to that in COVID-19, haven't we? We're we certainly working have. Working from home and... You know, uh, having flexible working conditions and the remote working office. So, and or overworking because we don't know when to stop because there's no
0: going <laughs> exactly. home. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, are you in Sydney or? I am in Sydney. Uh, okay, great. Yeah, so we don't have Michelle in the studio today, even though restrictions have lifted, and we <laughs> could have. Uh, Could have done, but we um, are actually calling from opposite sides of the city. So you have an amazing story. Do you want to tell us or just dive into
2: how you became the woman you are today? Yeah, look, I'm happy to sort of give you a bit of background, but uh, you know, I was always a bit of a I, I don't know, science nerd at school. I loved mm. maths and science. I used to love winning the chocky frog problem in mathematics. <laughs> and uh, then I went on to university and, and studied science. And um, But I was always very entrepreneurial. So when I was at uni, I was, you know, running little business initiatives on the side. I uh. founded a tertiary tutoring college And, uh, you know, so I was always um, like quite entrepreneurial and I think that was because I had an engineering father and a quite an entrepreneurial mother and my great uncle had founded SPC and my mother founded a school. And so that sort of mentality of entrepreneurship was Mm -hmm. really ingrained in me from a very young age and that you sort of had to, you know, find your own future and design your own future. Yeah. And I, I think that's what I always went around about doing. And I'm one of these people that, you know, when you see an opportunity, you don't let it pass you by, you, you know, you see it and then you act on it. And I think I've had the opportunity to act on opportunities multiple times in my life. And that's probably led me to where I am today. Yeah, um, that's such an awesome way of looking at it. Because it's like, so
1: fate is partly what happens to you, but also partly what you do with what comes your way. I would Exactly. Say. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So you have to grasp everything you can. So I mean so talk us through so you you studied science at the University of Sydney and got a master of science and um and double majored in physics and chemistry and then you then went on to do a PhD did you see yourself having a kind of career in science uh, and like doing something in in that field or what led you to eventually kind of start your own business
2: Um, At the start, I sort of thought, you know, I'd probably end up doing something in science. I didn't really know what. I was good at science and mathematics. And so that seemed sort of obvious place to start for me. And um, it was really when I was, you know, finishing my PhD. um, I got married. I was actually having a baby as well. Wow. And um, we needed to make some additional money, you know, so yeah. obviously. <laughs> Babies are expensive in sort this of city. One of, yeah. <laughs> one of the things that you have to do in life. Yeah. And so I, um, my husband was an engineer and he would started um, creating a program in reinforced and pre-stressed interactive design. And I started a sort of Tech business around the side of that, um, sort of leveraging his skills and my knowledge of, you know, science and computers, mm-hmm. and I founded a company called uh, Networks Beyond Two Thousand, huh. and um, and I was so I was doing computer hardware, software. My mother had got a grant to put technology into the performing arts, and this is really what sort of helped kick this off. And she said, Michelle, you're not doing anything. You know, you're writing up a PhD and you're having a baby. Um, and so you, you obviously have plenty of time. And, and, and as I started trying to help her with this grant, I ended up, you know, creating this technology business and, uh, and obviously that grew over time and we had more clients and I was employing staff and I saw the opportunity with um, .com, you know, One and the e-commerce um, opportunity starting to open up with the internet and yep. I started playing around just out of curiosity. I think ultimately entrepreneurs are very curious people. Mm-hmm. And I was playing around with the internet. I was buying domain names. I had a uh, one of my technology people set up an e-commerce store, which was pretty new back in 1997, yes. fairly yeah. clunky. But I was just experimenting with the internet. And... One day, my mother-in-law got a gift voucher for Mother's Day. This is in '97, mm-hmm. and um, my husband turned around and said, "Oh, gift vouchers online. would you know be." A pretty interesting thing to do, and I just looked at him and I said, That's the best idea you've ever had. And again, acting <laughs> on it, I went home and I brought every domain name in the world around gift vouchers <laughs> gift <giftvouchers.com, laughs> .com.au. Oh, wow. and um, decided that gift vouchers, like electronic vouchers, I never liked fulfillment of computers and you know, other fulfillment. You know, I didn't really like that. I so really ended up establishing probably what was one of Australia's first fintech companies, and we filed some of the first patents globally in the area around electronic vouchers, electronic codes, um, you know, funds over the internet. And uh, actually only, the only pattern that was sort of parallel with ours was one by Amazon about their e-shopping e-gift card. Wow. And um, so we, we got that business going and we managed to sign a whole lot of retail clients and um, our advertising company came on board and we raised some money and, you know, and, and this became a business in its own right and I sort of stepped away from my other computer hardware and software business to, you know, do this full-time and brought mm. on board some partners because, obviously, you can never build a business on your own. You need a multitude of skill sets. Mm. Mm. So who, who actually, um,
1: like, you, obviously this is in the late 90s and your husband was an engineer, so was he actually building... The, the software that was required or, or like doing the tech behind how you could do an electronic gift voucher? Because at the time, this was like pretty new and like very revolutionary. Yeah. How did um, it, it, the retail stores as well react to the idea of having an electronic gift voucher?
2: Yeah, we did bring in some um, computer software engineers. Mm. Um, but we. my father-in-law was also in computer software engineering and he put you know, some of the ideas together. So it was really a team of people like brainstorming how would this technology work? Yeah. Mm. And where we started with the technology, you know, obviously wasn't where we ended up because we started with the technology and it was all, you know, tracking and managing of electronic codes. And obviously where the retailers were was they'd never, ever... able to track and manage gift vouchers you know we went in and talked to some of them some of them had lost like half a million dollars worth of gift vouchers stolen from head office that were coming into their stores all the time so this was like really great for them they finally thought they would be able to control they're gift voucher programs. Because
0: wow. they were and, cards, right? Like back then before, you know, the internet, really. Yeah. <laughs> it well, was before like, the internet it yeah. was like bits of paper out right. of the checkout. Yeah. You know? So if you if you stole a stack of cards. Huh. You could. Yeah. That's that's weird to put. I mean, I remember them being bits of paper, mm. but it's yeah. weird to put ourselves in that headspace
2: now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, they would they'd just drift back into the store, and right. they'd be losing all this money. Crazy. Um, so we managed to sign up some really great retailers, and then we started looking at like, you know, um, actually it was sort of 1999, and you know, this there was supposed to be this big dot com Christmas. You know, uh, yeah. that they were. They were predicting and it was, you know, the bubble was really happening. I was able to raise capital just by like, you know, turning up at a cocktail party. I'm (laughs) I'm not kidding. It was like there was so much interest in the internet at that time that people were almost willing to sort of open a checkbook if you said you were in e-commerce and the internet. Did you feel like it was a bubble at that time? Or did you just think it's really exciting? Like
1: we're on the cusp of something amazing here?
2: Really exciting, a little bit crazy. you know, Because yeah. it didn't <laughs> seem to have like full business metric fundamentals behind it. Uh-huh. But uh, you did feel like you were sort of in, there was like high energy and there was a lot of interest and it was, people were starting to talk about, you know, would it be a bubble? Yeah. And um, we, you know, had projections around how, how many gift vouchers online we would sell in 1999. And we also knew that, you um, Retail travels in waves, you know. So November's always big and then December's very big. And yeah. you, so you can sort of predict what December will look like off November. Mm. And in 1999, um, November was really not what we expected it to be. It wasn't nearly as big. Uh, so they were predicting this huge e commerce Christmas and it just. It looked like it wasn't going to happen. And we had bus sides running. This is how big it was. You know, we were advertising <laughs> on bus sides. Sandra is not the <laughs> only one that can still deliver. And, uh, and we and and we pulled all our advertising really fast. That was wow. when we realised that this was a bubble and things were going to break and we had to work out a way of, like, making our company get through this, you know, and we started to see the tech crash coming. Mm-hmm. And yeah. We, yeah, and we had to really work through that then. And um, But probably because we acted early is the reason why our company, you know, ended up being one of the survivors from the tech crash yeah. and being one of the successful so companies to come through that.
1: Was it... Was it? So you were looking at, like, the predictions and the data, and it was that then ultimately what led you to the decision of this is a crash, we need to protect the company? Or what, what other things were you kind of basing this decision on? Because I think... From my understanding, it's quite hard to sometimes know that you're in a bubble when it's a bubble.
2: <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. it was definitely the data. Mm-hmm. We knew that we weren't going to hit anywhere near our projections. And as a result of that, you know, we had to like modify the spend because any marketing dollar, you know, you want to know you can produce for $1, 3 or $4, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and that the maths just wasn't working. And uh, so we realised at that point that the e-commerce world was only like 0.1% of the entire retail world Mm. and that our bigger opportunity was actually dealing with the biggest problem that our clients had, which was all their in-store vouchers. And um, like any good entrepreneur, you sort of pivot the business. And we pivoted the business to going in and solving their problem. And then it was how do we go about creating and making that easy And we thought the best approach would be to go through the banks and FPOS and drive all our connectivity through the Australian, you know, FPOS system. Mm, And and so we ended up being the only card scheme in the country that the banks settled that they didn't own. Um, And even they didn't, you know, settle American Express, American Express has to still settle itself. So we went through all their risk processes, and we got sponsored into the banking network, and we became one of the first sort of alternative bank-related companies um, in Australia. And, wow! So this um, was
1: creating. Cre- so this is basically giving people gift voucher credit that they can then spend at the stores. Is,
2: is yeah, and and or you know, if you even now, if you walk into Coles or Myra or you know, and you buy an, a gift card. Mm -hmm. It runs on the platform that we we established through the banks. Oh my
1: god! So we
2: ended up signing, um, you know, Coles, the whole Coles Myer group as it was then. Yeah. Um, And we started rolling out their brands, and that was, and then we signed Woolworths, and then the business was really away, and we basically were powering just about every single retail store's electronic and gift card programs across Australia. So then the opportunity came to expand offshore
0: so I just want to pop in a little bit of translation because we do have a lot of American listeners as well
2: <laughs> yeah. so guys it's a Kohl's, gift certificate. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's a certificate and also Coles Meyer would be a lot like like Meyers a lot like a Macy's in the states and then Coles I guess would be a major supermarket like chain like Walmart, yeah or mm, I'd be yeah. more like Giant Eagle like a little bit okay. more high-end but yeah, yeah, major, major players in
2: the market.
1: So did you then expand into the states or um internationally at
2: that we, point? We we didn't go into the US, but I have a little funny story about the US. Mm. So it was um, New Year's Eve and giftcertificates.com in the US. Um so we we decided we'd do everything but the US um, mm. because vouchers were pervasive everywhere else and was what they were called everywhere else. And in the US they were called gift certificates. The <laughs> giftcertificates dot com sponsored the New Year's Eve dropping of the ball in New York City, of course. and we <laughs> got a massive amount of promotion out of that <laughs> because everyone else in the world knows them as gift vouchers and uh, and <laughs> gift certificates.com. So that was like just just a little side story. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> amazing. That's <funny. laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> wow.
1: Okay, so then you started to kind of yeah, expand internationally and then gift vouchers.com was acquired in two thousand and five. Um, how did that right. all come about? Like were you looking to exit at that point? Was were you approached and then what was kind of the decision process behind that acquisition?
2: Yeah, it's it's really interesting because we've been building the business for many years, and as as all businesses do, you're going on this roller coaster ride. And then we mm. just got to the point where everything was really coming together. You know, Australia was running; we were profitable, we were expanding into the UK. We owned New Zealand by then, and we started actually some business in South Africa as well. Yeah, and um, we were approached by a company. Um, that was doing um, fuel cards and they were interested in just having, like any other retailer, a gift card program and they sent in some of their people. The next minute we have the UK CEO of Retail Decisions flying out and they were a publicly listed company Mm -hmm. um, that was working in the retail space in the UK. And, um, And so out of the blue we got an offer to have the company acquired and there was a negotiation and due diligence process that we went through and in the end they made an offer. The, the initial offer they made we didn't accept and then they kept upping their offer and in the, in the end they put an offer forward that we thought was acceptable and our investors by that stage had been in the business for over six years. We raised $6.5 million mm-hmm.
0: um,
2: in building the business and so um, we thought, you know, it was probably a, a good time to exit the business. Um. And, you know, for me, you know, I'd always felt huge responsibility for that investor capital, particularly some of the investors that had come in before the tech crash had happened. Yeah. Uh, to be able to see them get a successful result. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, it was, a, it was sort of positive to, you know, make the exit happen at that time and and realise some benefits for all those involved. Yeah,
1: and then, how did that make you feel? Because obviously, this is something that you've worked and built on so many times, so many, over so many years. You're in the business; it's your thing that you're living and breathing every day. Once it's acquired, and it's no longer under your ownership, did you carry on working with the business, or did you? Was it a clean break? Did you feel like you didn't know
2: what to do anymore at that point? What was yeah, going so that I happens? had. <laughs> um, they signed me for a year to do the business handover. Mm-hmm. And part of that was that ten percent of the proceeds were escrowed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, on the basis that you know I did a effective handover in the year, yeah um, the business moved into a company that had a completely different culture. So, The reality for me, I quickly realised that there was no way I would stay in this, working for this company. It was a very hierarchical company, much bigger corporate conglomerate Mm. and I was used to being a very nimble entrepreneurial person and the culture of our company was very innovative and entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew sort of six months in that, you know, I wasn't going to stay here and make this my working career. Um, But when I did finally step out at the end of that year, for a while I didn't know where I was there was definitely a huge feeling of um, loss yeah um, because I was so used to being needed every day and going to work every day and even when I was on holidays I was never really on holidays uh, because I was just like thinking about the business 24 by 7 Um, and then you have to start like working out okay you know what's the next thing you're going to do with your life yeah yeah and looking around for, again, the new opportunities that you could maybe action. And what quickly happened was I actually started mentoring a a lot of entrepreneurs. I didn't expect it, but after having built and exited a sort of fintech company, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of entrepreneurs started reaching out to me and I started working with a lot of entrepreneurs on their business, um, almost like in-house advisor. And I really enjoyed that and that was when one of my um, own mentors. I was a big believer in mentors and I had many during my business careers mm. and one of my mentors said, you know, Michelle, you should think about venture capital huh. and I just never even thought about that before and mm-hmm. I started then, again, there was the idea. I started looking <laughs> in and looking around at what that would look like, what it would mean for me to work in venture capital and I thought I would go and work for a firm and I looked around the market and I Felt that you needed to have business building experience to be a good venture capitalist. Yeah, yeah. and um, I couldn't find a firm that I really liked. I, I went and did a day a week for free, and you know, I also believe in, you know, if you want to learn something, um, go and volunteer. Yeah, and I, good you know, did a day a week in a venture capital firm, learning about how they worked. Yeah, and um, and doing a bit, bits of work for them, and then um, decided to set up my own venture capital firm and that's one ventures that you and still now today. yeah wow that's right so- and and at at the time i, I didn't think um, it would be that difficult to do because you know I'd exited a business and investors would obviously put their money in and yeah. then we went into a tech, uh, we went from you know having been through a tech crash and into a global financial crisis. Yeah, and I had to raise my first fund in a global financial crisis. So. You're so good
0: on the timing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh well. So can you explain how it how it works? If starting starting a venture capital fund, then so this isn't all your money. You actually go and find investors and put together a fund. Is that? is that correct?
2: That's right. Right. Okay. It, it's a bit like starting your own business and raising money, but here you're, you know, you're raising money into a fund where you're going to then find the technology companies and businesses that you're going to invest in.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So really it, it depends on your experience
2: and your salesmanship and like a lot of factors to be able to secure the funds that you need. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, we, we were, a bit fortunate at the time that the Australian government was running a program called the Innovation Investment Fund program. And uh, you could bid for capital from them and um, and do that with some matching capital from private investors. So hmm. you could bid for 20 million, but you had to find 20 million of private investor capital. Okay. And... Um, we put in a bid and we were one of the successful bidders. They were trying to create new managers, so it was just actually really good timing. Yeah, But raising the money was really hard in the global financial crisis, but I was really lucky that the investors that had been in my previous business sort of underwrote the start of that fund yes. and then we built on that with new investors and... You know, building relationships with investors over time is a really good way to, and One Ventures has continued to grow as a result of that. We Mm. now have like, you know, 200-odd investors in One Ventures. Um, But at that time, you know, it's getting out, creating the relationships with investors, Mm. listening to them, what are they interested in, being able to tailor your message, all the sorts of things that you need to do when you're raising capital.
0: Yeah. So, what is One Venture's mission or purpose? I mean, is there a specific type of um, company that you look to invest in? Like, what is what is your what's at the core of your company?
2: Yes. Yeah. So, we're looking for companies that are transforming global markets in their areas in mm. healthcare and technology. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, as an example, we've invested in very topically a vaccine micro patch array company. Mm-hmm. So if cool. you can imagine a little patch that has vaccine on it and you just apply it on your arm and peel it off and, you know, you're vaccinated. Wow. And um, that company is going really well. It's got contracts with major pharmaceutical companies around the world and we've got, you know, data insights and intelligence companies. We've got, you know, HR companies in the cloud, also very topical, remote working, managing, you know, your Mm. employees remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've got a total artificial heart company. So we're investing in things that we think are going to have a great impact on the world Mm -hmm. um, in the long run and society. So both an economic benefit for our investors but also a strong societal return as well, mm. wow, and you've completely beautiful.
1: sort of then, I guess, moved away from retail and e-commerce.
2: That's true. We we do have companies in our portfolio though that touch on those sectors. You mm. know, just as an example, we've got a shipping and logistics e-commerce company in our portfolio. Um, we've got another fintech company in our portfolio. So we do, um, so I do see and get to use that experience, but also the experience from my years of science at university as well. Yeah. And I've got great partners, you know, my fellow managing partner, um, Paul Kelly, who's a specialist endocrinologist by training, who went into business and then came back around and, you know, is now a venture capitalist with me in One Ventures.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) So two scientists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. Science and medicine. (laughs) So one of the things that I really admire you for is that um, throughout your career, and especially for One Ventures now, you're negotiating for huge contracts with investors and um, are obviously a very astute negotiator. So what are some of your tips for a successful negotiation? And how can women especially get better at negotiating terms that are favourable?
2: I I think first of all you need to really um, get your pitch right Mm. Um, so that's one of the things like I spend a lot of time thinking about what's the story and how do I create the story that as I'm telling the story it builds huge trust Mm. and it builds huge interest and people I'm starting to bring people on this journey of, uh, you know, making the relationship through to becoming an investor because it's it's an investment decision journey and you've got to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. And um, and also I'm prepared to build the relationships some front and I'm also not afraid to hear no. Yeah. So a lot of, you know, female entrepreneurs, they'll hear no from an investor and they might even burst into tears. Um, I know I used to feel quite, you know, like upset if people said no to me and i learned that no is actually just a step on the way to yes it means that <laughs> there's there's issues that they haven't quite resolved in their thinking about your business and it's not a personal thing yeah and you need to listen to them and find out what are their decision drivers is it around tax? Is it around time to get the return? You know, how long am I going to be an investor with you? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it that they're really, really interested in the new whiz-bang bit of technology, or are they much more interested in how you're going to market and sell your product? Mm. You know, what is it that um, are their decision drivers? So, I always listen to investors first. I always ask them a lot about themselves first before I actually even get into a pitch,
0: Mm. because
2: I'll adjust my message around what I learn about them you know do they have interests in specific areas like healthcare over technology you know what is it that they're really interested in yeah and then I'm also prepared to ask for more than maybe I want to get okay um, because you know you if you ask for less you're never going to get more people never come back and say well how much are you raising and you are <laughs> raising I'm raising um you know uh half a million dollars um they'll they'll never give you more than half a million dollars. What I tend to do is I might even say to a family office, look, typically a family office would invest up to, you know, $3 million with us Mm -hmm. Uh, and what, you know, the minimum for a high net worth is X. But, you know, typically this is what they would do. Or typically a large family office would do $10 million investment with us, Mm -hmm. Uh, knowing that that will be on the high side, but probably will end up somewhere in the middle. Right. So it's it's not being afraid to ask, not being afraid to hear no, but also understanding the investor's language. Yeah. So they want to know that they're going to get a return on their money. You need to be able to speak that. And often we don't spend enough time thinking about how we communicate how the investor is going to get a return mm-hmm. and when they're going to get the return yeah. and what that return will look like. And certainly don't go in with a high ego and and tell them, you know, they're going to be lucky to invest with you. It's probably the closest (laughs) way to showing the door. Um, The other thing I would recommend is you raise with a team. It's it's much more powerful. Um, You know, people expect that you can't do everything yourself. So, you know, make sure you have the other people in the room who are part of your team and they can speak to each of their bits and have a well thought out story mm. because it makes you look much bigger than you are yourself. Yeah. You know, you, you're trying to raise $5 million. Well, look like you've got the team that can manage $5 million. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's such good advice. It is such good advice when people don't think about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Perception is reality.
2: That's right yeah, so and and also be really responsive. So if an investor asks for something from you, make sure you like you get it back to them really quickly. Um mm-hmm. so think about the types of things that investors are going to need when they're on that decision making journey. Mm-hmm. and then, if you can show you can be really responsive, you're just ticking the box the whole time. I even have another little process that I use where when I've got an investor sort of on the journey, mm-hmm. I send them a letter of intent. It's not binding but it says, um, you know, I'm going to reserve your your commitment or your allocation. Um, you don't need to tell me it's definitely yes yet, it's non-binding, but so I, I can make sure you've got an allocation and you won't miss out if you just sign the letter and let me know how much you're, you're interested in, I can, you know, put that in the book. Nice. And okay. it's... Funny how much people feel committed when they sign that non-binding letter, but it's much less threatening to them than signing a subscription agreement.
1: Yeah, and then when you have that letter of intent from one person, it's easier to persuade or, like, have someone else come on board because they can see that other people are actually interested.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and and even though they're not signed up, they're sort of signed up. So you can start using that and you can say, I've already got letters of interest from, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 parties for this amount of money, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and it's actually tangible um versus just saying oh yeah I'm talking to like you know 10 different investors so you're starting to create some tangible outcomes in your capital raising process would you say that's a really important um piece of the puzzle for female founders that are looking
1: for funding and investment is to is to already have some investors kind of with a letter of intent
2: look I think it all helps Mm -hmm. Um, It's a technique I've used anyway. There are lots of different techniques. It's a technique that I've successfully managed to use and still use today Mm -hmm. in my business.
0: Yeah. Hmm. What are some other things um, for young companies, you know, new companies
2: when they pitch you? Mm. What works? Yeah, look, I think they need to understand their business key metrics and the value drivers of their business. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of people come in and they can't tell you if you put a dollar of investment in, how that translates in their business. So, for example, they don't understand how much it costs them to acquire a customer or what the lifetime value of that customer is. Yeah. And so really understanding your business really well and actually being able to speak to the numbers um, is quite important. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have numbers because you're still really early, It's like here's how our business model is going to work and this is what we think we can sell for and this is why and we've tested the market and we've got our first paying customer Mm -hmm. um, and they've paid this much. We believe we can sign, you know, 10 more of these in the next six months. You know, so you can actually start to show them you're validating your business model. So you've got a business model and you're validating it and um, and that you actually understand how that model works and that's why you're taking on investment.
1: Would you say or do you do you know this to be true that it's easier to get investment in the US than it is in Australia or would you disagree with that statement?
2: You know I probably I disagree. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more people looking for money in the US mm-hmm. so whilst there's a lot more funding, yeah if you do it if you look at it on a you know, percent of GDP type basis, Australia has less capital available. There's absolutely no question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot more people looking for capital in the States. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do I think, you know, if you you can just jump on a plane and go to the US and you, you'll raise your capital, I think it's still a highly competitive market. Um, but as entrepreneurs, you've got to be willing to be creative when mm-hmm. you're raising capital. It might be that your biggest customer is a party that, you know, provides you capital. Um, obviously the cheapest capital you can ever raise is signing customers.
0: Yeah.
2: To your business. So, you know, if you can sign a customer, that's the best capital you yeah. can raise. Um, and then there's other products as well available as you scale your business now. So you don't just have to take equity. There's venture credit type products. And we launched a venture credit product more recently where, you know, if your business is doing more than about three million in annual recurring revenue, you can go and get a, a loan instead of taking all equity. Wow. So you might have raised some equity and then you can come and get a loan to help take your business forward on the basis that again you understand your business metrics. Yeah, rather than a bank loan. Banks won't lend you when you're still burning cash. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, you you until you're sort of profitable and maybe can show three years of cash flow positive. Mm. Um, but you know, venture capitalists do, and because we understand startup businesses and we understand business scaling, and that often it takes many many years that you're scaling a business before you'll be profitable, but yeah. you can still be a great business and have a great result. Wow. Wow,
1: it's been so amazing to speak to you and 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 get your advice and hear about your story. We've really enjoyed listening to what you have to say. So thank you so much for coming on yeah. to the podcast.
0: What an incredible story with so many layers.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Michelle. It was it was amazing to to meet you, and
2: um, I wish you an amazing twenty twenty one. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for your time and have a good, let's hope it's a great year for everyone.
0: Yeah. Yes, let's hope we've connected with you on everything, every platform. So we'll chat soon. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye This podcast was brought to you by Invoice2Go. We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, Listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.